G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and this is The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. Just a quick check of the price shock. So jobs are on the line, fuel prices are soaring, vegetable prices and essentials are soaring. Now, the percentage of uneducated and unemployed people between 15 to 29 year age group, South Africa, 36.65%, India, 30.83%. 30,000 new youngsters coming into the job market every single day. 450 jobs being provided today. So you can do the math. And that, that, that doesn't include unemployed people. We are one of the youngest nations in the world. And about 31% of this age group between 15 to 29 years is currently unemployed. One of the striking findings in Australia's most recent census is that the Indian population in Australia has grown to nearly half a million, up from around 300,000 people in census 2011. Of Australia's 22.4 million people, today those of Indian origin comprise nearly 2% of the total population. Considering this extraordinary growth in Australia's Indian population, we thought it timely to turn the policy lens to the world's second most populous nation. Nearly 1.2 billion people live in India, and by 2030 it's projected to become the first political entity in history to be home to more than 1.5 billion people. In this episode of The Policy Shop, we're going to take a closer look at the nation sometimes forgotten in Australia's focus on Asia. And in particular, we're interested in one pressing public policy challenge for India, youth unemployment. With two-thirds of its 1.2 billion people under the age of 35, India has the world's largest youth population, something that's both a blessing and a challenge. Over 30% of youth between 15 and 29 in India are not in employment, education or training. That's more than double the OECD average. Why does India have such a large youth unemployment rate? What's the impact of this in India and globally, with 600 million young people set to compete for perhaps 200 million jobs over the next decade? What are the lessons we should draw out for India and for other nations? And to help us answer these questions, we have two distinguished guests in the studio. Professor Craig Jeffrey is Director of the Australia India Institute. Welcome, Craig. Thank you, Glenn. And also joining us in the studio is Dr. Jane Dyson, who's worked for 14 years in the high Himalayas in India, examining gender, work and social transformation. Welcome, Jane. Thanks, Glenn. And can I ask you both just to start, why India? Why did you focus your research and engagement on this nation? Well, maybe I should start. My grandfather was actually a surgeon in India in the late 1940s and 1950s. So I grew up hearing stories about India. And then, like I suppose a lot of people, I did a very inspiring undergraduate subject while at Cambridge in the early 1990s on India that was taught by Professor Stuart Corbridge and just became fascinated by the country and and have been ever since. It's a long and enduring interest then. Yes. Jane, what drew you to India and the high Himalayas? I'd actually been working for several years in different parts of Africa um, prior to my work in India. I'd been working in kind of conservation and issues around rural people's management of the environment. Um, But I'd started reading a lot more about the social and environmental movements in India and particularly the kind of proactive ways that rural people sought to manage their natural resources. 
I was really fascinated by that local level political action that, that India is really well known for. And so I kind of followed on from my work in Africa and was particularly interested in the role of children and young people. Um, and that cohort is really often missed out from kind of debates around local knowledge and environmental practice. Um, so I eventually began my PhD um, and lived for 15 months in this really remote village in the Indian Himalayas um, and have continued to work there ever since. I've done a couple of other projects around around India, but that's always uh, that's now my, my long term uh, research uh, field site. So the young people you first studied in the village are now in their 20s? Yeah, that's right. So when I first went there, they were sort of aged between about 11 and 17. And I've watched them grow up. Some of them have become married and had their own children. Um, and they're all, yes, in their, in their 20s and some in their early 30s. And when you think about the pattern of trajectories for those people, what have you observed? It's been it's been an incredible generation to watch. Um, they they've been the first generation to get an education, um, uh, and sometimes that education has has kind of unfolded almost in a sort of six monthly basis. So so many of the girls that I worked with, who were eleven in the early two thousands, their parents were pulling them out of school at grade five. Uh, and every six months, they would the the girls would say, just just give me a little bit more, a little bit more, and they'd push and push and push. And some of those girls, who were you know destined to 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 leave school at grade five, have actually now gone on finished high school, and some of some are um, continuing into higher education. Um, so it's been an incredibly radical change um, that we've almost watched every you know every, every year. And these are generations of patterns being overturned. Completely, yeah. And, and, and the, the parents of these, uh, of these young children are all uh, either illiterate or, or, or semi-literate. So from, from uh, a generation of illiterate parents to, to ones who have, have completed bachelor's degrees um, and are now teachers and a range of other uh, professions, it's been a huge change. Remarkable to watch. Before we turn further to this question of youth in, in India, I'd just like to touch on the Australia-India relationship. And Craig, you've joined the University of Melbourne as the director of Australia's only India-focused research institute. What drew you there and what do you make, as someone new to this country, of the relationship between Australia and India? What drew me to, to Melbourne and, and to the University of Melbourne and, and the Australia India Institute was really a, a sense that the university was doing a whole series of very exciting work in the area of engagement and in the area of internationalisation. I knew that the Australia India Institute was the only institute na of, of nas with a national presence in Australia that worked on India. I was very impressed with the work it was doing. I thought this was a fantastic opportunity to develop a research, a teaching and engagement program around India in a part of the world that's very interesting. And as you illustrated just now, Glenn, it's a part of the world that's increasingly becoming Indian. The, the flows of people, of ideas, of, of um, resources between Australia and India are becoming much larger and more uh, interesting. So uh, it, this, is, this was a fantastic opportunity, I think, to, to be part of the the, the effort to raise India consciousness in in um, an interesting part of the world. So an, an oft-repeated observation about the Australian-India relationship is that Australians discover India about once every 20 years. Um, do we have an enduring relationship? Well, I think things have changed now because of the size of the India diaspora population in Australia. Uh, you, you mentioned the statistics just now, but I think it 
11 years ago, there were roughly 100,000 people of India origin in Australia. And now that figure, as you said, is near, closer to 500,000. And that creates all kinds of flows of, um, of ideas both ways. I, I think also there's a sense that policymakers uh, and industry are seeing that they're in some respects overly dependent on China or have maybe been focused too much on China to the exclusion of other Asian countries in Australia. And they recognise the importance of developing trade and investment and commercial activity with, with India. It's striking that the trade with India is only worth roughly 10% of the trade with China at the moment. And I think there's a sense that that needs to change, that India is this hugely interesting democratic country with all kinds of uh, important relationships with Australia already through its history and relationship to, to Britain, through sport, through sort of public culture, a, a shared interest in food and, and, and um, cultural activity. And that this is a moment now that is a little bit different from previous rounds of enthusiasm where there's a real intent for change. But as you noted then, the two-way trade is still a relatively meagre 19 billion a year. And that's a long way behind China, but also behind Japan or South Korea. Let's look now at the interesting question of the Indian economy and in particular youth unemployment. One million young people enter the job market every month in India. That's the population of Australia entering the job market every two years. And Jane, 70% of people in India, of young people in India, of course, are in rural areas and you've spent a lot of time in those areas. How does high unemployment rates play out socially, economically and even politically? What we've seen is um, perhaps something a little unexpected in that uh, you have huge numbers of educated but unemployed young people, um, particularly in the, in the kinds of very marginalised remote areas that, that I've been working in, um, who are actually incredibly busy. So they, they identify themselves as being unemployed um, and yet every minute of their day is, is spent busy. Um, so the young people that I work with are farming full time, often, so you know, ploughing the fields, harvesting, um, or they're looking for you know small time work, perhaps on government building projects, uh, perhaps collecting resources from the forest that they might be able to sell, perhaps running mules as a transport trade. They're also busy applying for government jobs. They might still be um, in the evenings studying for a master's degree or a bachelor in education to try and uh, bolster their, their chances of getting employment um, and perhaps also doing some kind of work uh, as an assistant teacher or assistant in some kind of government health program. Uh, so these are young people who are you know, constantly busy, constantly uh, remaking what it means to be educated uh, but, but unemployed, um, and, and engaging constantly also in, in ideas of, of what they call social work. Does this contribute to urban flight? Does the need for higher education or even further education, finishing school, um, require a lot of people to leave rural areas? Yes, absolutely. And, and education is, is really one of the, the biggest reasons why, why young people are leaving. Um, and then, of course, and although a lot of the people that we work with are able to do um, bachelor degrees by kind of by correspondence, so as a, as a private uh, student, so they can sit the exams, but otherwise be in the village and work. 
um, in the village. But certainly, you know, after getting an education, there's a big outflow, a big migration to often the smaller cities and smaller towns, not necessarily the really big urban centres. At a time Australia's higher education participation grew dramatically, there was quite a lot of tension between, as it were, children and parents, between different worldviews and parents who felt that their children had moved away from their world and their understanding. Mm. Are we seeing the same pattern in India? Absolutely. And, it, you know, it, it's changing uh, the nature of the village in, in, or the, the rural areas in some senses. Um, but in, in the hills, in the Himalayas, there's still a really strong sense of what it means to be Pahari, to, to be off, off the hills. Um, and even if young, young people are moving out of the village, um, many of them are holding on to that identity. Um, and there's, uh, there's this idea that, you know, that migration, there's this, this sort of flood away from rural areas into the cities. And actually, it's a lot more fluid than that. Young people are constantly coming to and from the village uh, and the city, um, maintaining very strong ties in, in the rural areas um, and really and often wanting their children to grow up uh, in the village and to have the same kind of childhood that they had. Um, and 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 so so there isn't this sort of whole scale permanent move uh, uh, to the cities that that we might imagine that the you know lot stronger links that remain in the in the villages. Craig, for a long time, India's had one of the world's fastest growing economies. Though we're seeing now signs of slowing in that, and that has significant consequences. Can you tell us something about the economic challenge for India, and how does any economy? absorb that number of young people looking for employment? Clint, I think jobs is the major challenge for India over the next 20 years. Since the early 1990s, India's economic growth has increased famously uh, from the so-called Hindu rate of growth, bumping along at around 3% during the 60s and 70s and to some extent the 80s to a levels between 2003 and 2009 of, of around 8% on average. So uh, the, the Indian economy, on the face of it, is extremely strong and growing very fast. The problem is that there's been the quality of that economic growth in terms of its capacity to reduce poverty, in terms of its capacity to generate jobs, in terms of its capacity to trickle down to the, the poor and the lower middle class. Even during the fastest period of economic growth between 2003 and 2009, the economy was actually n- not creating any new jobs. And, and actually, if you look now at the sectors like in, in, information technology, the, the number of jobs is actually coming down. How is this possible? Well, it's partly to do with the fact that the economic growth has mainly been within the service sector. So there's not so many spread effects. You, know, you start a, a software company, it generates demand for maybe pizzas and for there's certain components. But it's not like starting a car factory where there's a lot more spread effects yeah. in terms of the generation of jobs. It's partly to do with automation and mechanization, though one shouldn't make too much of that. It's also to do with the fact that the Indian state is under a lot of pressure, including pressure from external organizations like the World Bank to cut down in size. So so, so if you look in the 60s and, and 70s, educated people had pretty good opportunities to get into public sector employment. That mindset continued into the 80s, 90s and 2000s. If I get a BA degree, I should be able to go on and and join a a state, uh, get state employment or central government employment. But that's no longer the case, partly because of the increased demand, but also there's been a contracting supply in many cases. So you have a situation where in the 1970s, as early as the 1970s, Ronald Dore described India as the, the country of the BA bus conductor. But a lot of the people that Jane and I know would 
they'd cut off their arm for for a job as a bus conductor after a BA, and it's actually become the country of the MA manual labourer. It really is a dire situation. That's very disturbing. Craig, you vividly described one impact on India's youth, one that you describe as time pass. Can you explain what time pass means and why might it matter? Well, it's a curious phrase that I don't think you heard in India up until roughly the mid-1990s. I haven't found it in any of the uh, earlier 20th century anthropological accounts or popular literature in India. But it it became very common in in the 1990s and 2000s and was ubiquitous when I was doing research in 2004 and 2005 in the North Indian city of Meerut in western Uttar Pradesh, where many young people who remained often enrolled in university or college talked about their lives as ones of, of time pass. So they spent their days reading newspapers, sitting on the street corners, chatting in hostel rooms, trying to stave off negative introspection, forget about their plight as unemployed young people, uh, and instead channel their time into just being, just waiting for what they hoped would be around the corner, which would be a, a government job. So time passed sort of was a word that communicated a sense of detachment from the, what they were doing, from their university studies. They were just doing it time passed. They weren't doing it seriously. It suggested a sense of being left behind relative to the few people who had made it. And it signaled a sense also of of feeling lost and and uh, subject to a sort of surplus of time, uh, a, a boredom, an ennui uh, that, of course, is not distinct distinctive to India, but which is very powerful in that particular time and place. At the same time, I try to show how time passed and this sense of waiting provided a basis for young people to develop friendships across religious and caste lines that wouldn't have been possible in the village. So time pass was actually productive of certain kinds of relationships. It led to quite a lot of anti-corruption movements in the city. So it had a generative aspect as well as being a signal of young people's hardship. So Jane, when you look at unemployed young people, including those from the village you've studied, what do you see as the patterns of how their lives progress and what their expectations are? So we're seeing uh, up in the hills um, time pass in a, in a in a quite a different way. You know, there isn't this sort of this waiting around, this you know, this kind of sitting around. Um, instead, as as I said earlier, the young people are always busy. There's always work to do. It's a difficult place to live up in um, you know at high altitude. You have to work incredibly hard just to eke out a living. You know, to make enough food for yourself. Um, so so time pass is spent being busy um, uh, and and juggling a whole range of different types of, of jobs as well as you know, as well as studying and um, uh, but it's also really productive of uh, of a new type of politics I think that that we're looking at you know from the ground that is both generative so generative of new types of resources so these young educated but un- unemployed young people have been very involved in bringing in electricity to the region. Um, so when I first worked there, there was no electricity. There were there was no road that you had to walk, you know, a good half a day or day to walk to get to the village. Um, and young people were very involved in uh, in in a number of different types of social movements um, that resulted in the government finally bringing in a dirt road. Uh, that was actually you know, young people getting together with picks and axes and actually starting to build the road themselves. So you've described very locally based politics. Does this play out into wider fora? It certainly does, but perhaps not in the ways we might expect. So young people aren't going into formal politics. They consider, you know, party politics, electoral politics to be 
a bit of a kind of dirty word. It has connotations with corruption and kind of nefarious action. So young people are saying we're not politicians, but we do do everyday politics. Um, and by that, they mean in the sort of the Gandhian sense that being the change they want to see in the world, um, what we're calling prefigurative politics. So drawing on, uh, you know, trying to achieve local development through all sorts of um, embodied action through helping people to get access to healthcare, um, through rebuilding paths, through avoiding paying bribes and, you know, working hard to kind of develop these very kind of collaborative, um, cooperative relationships, you know, to, to change things, to, to actually get things done. It's a very interesting pattern, isn't it? Some people have ascribed the Arab Spring to lots of unemployed young people and rising prices and general anger. And yet, Craig... Um, you're not anticipating this sort of development in India. I think it's one of the big puzzles of India since 1947 is a lot of people have been left out of the positive economic changes that have happened in India since 1947. They've seen, in some cases, a, a slight improvement in their living conditions, but there, there hasn't been uh, the kind of generalised improvement in people's education social conditions that you've seen, for example, in China. Uh, and yet there hasn't been a major revolution. Now, the caveat would be there's obviously been Marxist activity in some parts of central India in the Naxalite rebellion, but there hasn't been a general uprising. I think part of the answer for that is is liberal democracy, that the, the ballot box does provide some kind of insurance against a, a big uprising. I think part of the answer is that there are people at the local level of the type that Jane just described, often young people who are trying to get things done for their communities, who are part of a sort of invisible civil society. They're not necessarily part of NGOs, they're not necessarily part of named associations, but they help an aunt to get access to health care. They help to get a new class in a school or to get a road to a village. And I think that kind of everyday production of hope is really important in terms of how India survives as a democracy and as a civil society. And it's it's fascinating. I think doing field work in the kind of areas where Jane and I work is, on the one hand, profoundly depressing in terms of the inequalities and the, and the social hardship, but also really inspiring. Craig, when you look at the region, do you expect the pattern in India, which is surprising sort of acquiescence and activism rather than apathy followed by revolt to play out elsewhere? Or is liberal democracy an important component here? I think liberal democracy is crucial. If you look at Pakistan, you've had a series of more violent urban insurrections associated with with the profound frustration. Uh, I think in Nepal, you've had a much more explosive political situation with Maoism becoming really very important in terms of uh, as a vehicle for expressing young people's frustration about social and economic change. I think India is quite unusual. It's unusual too with reference to sub-Saharan African countries where liberal democracy wasn't successful in part because you had a series of big men or, or political patrons who mobilised disenfranchised youth to overthrow existing governments. So I think the, the democratic miracle in India is, is, is really very, very interesting from a comparative perspective and opens up lots of opportunities, I think, for political scientists, sociologists, anthropologists to explore in relation to whatever particular topic they're interested in. But youth and, and India is just, is it, it's, it's a fascinating lens through which to think about 
politics as as well as uh, the, the the implications of, of unemployment for society. And it raises a very important question about generational change. And I know, Jane, you've done work on this and you've looked back at Carl Mannenheim's uh, sociology on generational change. What do you observe about the way the generations interact and the changes that are occurring? Well, as I said before, the, the cohort, the generation of young people that I've been following um, have really been you know, this first generation to get an education, the first generation to really think about um, trying to get secure salaried employment outside the village over the long term, um, but also to have access to different types of technology. There's now mobile phone access in the village. And so that that creates all sorts of tensions and differences between generations. And what we're seeing at this this generation of young people in their in their 20s acting as a kind of go-between, a sort of interstitial generation between the, the older gener their parents in you know from the ages of 40 or 50 upwards and uh, and a younger school going generation for whom you know agricultural physical toil is never going to be the the central lens through um, through their life and so this this intermediate this in between generation has been incredibly important in both in generating change and generating new resources but also um, in some ways smoothing over the tensions that might arise between uh, a young school-going generation and their and their farming parents. Craig, how will the national political system respond to the challenge of vast numbers of unemployed and relatively qualified young people unhappy with the way their lives are developing? Well, it's the sixty-four thousand dollar question, really. I, I think you know, Modi came to power in part through making a series of promises to this young generation of jobs, of skills, of new forms of training, of, of new rewards, that, that, that the benefits of Indian economic growth were going to trickle down to youth. It hasn't happened yet, frankly. You know, Modi certainly made some positive changes in terms of um, education and, and in terms of trying to, to generate work, but still the Indian economy is not delivering in terms of jobs. So it, it, it remains unclear whether the chickens will come home to roost in the 2019 elections or whether Modi will be able to sort of defer those aspirations on to a, to a new period. His support seems to be pretty strong at the moment, so the indicators would be that he'll have at least another seven years to, to try to ensure that the Indian economy does generate the kind of work that the young people that Jane and I work with demand, which is quite often white-collar, you know, what they call pen work, um, manual labour doesn't tend to be valued. Although you know, another another possibility that Jane and I are very interested in is, is that actually some aspects of agriculture and manual labour will be revalued, that they will become more attractive to young people, that they will be seen as being important in terms of innovation and entrepreneurship. And Modi's certainly working hard in that respect too. So that gives us a national picture. Jane, you're dealing with a very specific locality and thinking about the play out of generational change in that locality. But what is the role of the state in this? What changes in policy or provision would make a difference for the village? I think there are a number of things. I mean, the first is this gap in service provisions that, that at the moment young people are um, trying to plug. So, you know, very poor access to healthcare, very, very poor um, schooling. And these young people are, are, are working as these go-betweens to help people get access, to help people actually, you know, taking their aunts physically to hospital. Um, and, and without this generation of, of 
energetic and educated young people. There are simply several people who wouldn't get their pensions, who wouldn't get access to um, the provisions that they need. Um, so clearly, there's there's there are gaps in service provision. Um, but I think it's also about um, not stereotyping these young people, actually not thinking about them as being merely demoralised and detached and um, you know separate from the well-engaged workforce, but actually thinking about them as being constantly engaged, constantly remaking what it, what work means and remaking what politics means at that local level and making sure that they become not just beneficiaries of policy, but actually you know partners in policy and, and trying to understand what it means to these young people to be in these kind of situations and how can we learn from their, their, their situations and um, understand what they need. Final question for you both, if I may. We've been thinking about India and what's happening in India, but here in Australia from a distance, we're looking and thinking and seeing are there ways we should be involved. And so wearing perhaps your Australia-India Institute Mm. hat, Craig, how should Australia engage with these questions? What matters to us? What should we learn from the Indian experience? And what might we contribute? I think we started by talking about the existing economic relationship between Australia and India, which at the moment despite a lot of hard work over several decades, does remain fairly narrow in terms of the trade and exchange of gold, of uh, uh, certain types of international education. So I think there's a potential to develop a much broader, multi-stranded economic relationship, which looks at how cross-national collaboration can be the basis for generating good quality economic growth. So how could Australia and India working together be a way of generating small and medium-sized business in both countries that employs other people, that is socially sustainable, that is environmentally sustainable. I think that the Australian government should look closely at the kinds of entrepreneurial spirit that we're picking up in regional parts of India as a basis for thinking about possibilities to learn in terms of entrepreneurship and and enterprise. I think there's lots of possibilities for uh, Australia in the regions to engage with the the regions of of India. One of my observations would be that in in, in, so far as, as director, a lot of the excellent conversations that take place are between the metropolitan regions of Australia and the metropolitan regions of India. It's necessarily rather elitist, but it's also geographically quite constrained. How could developing conversations between Townsville and Meerut, between you know the, the um, some of the challenges around remoteness that Jane and I are picking up in in the Himalayas, are challenges that are familiar to a lot of Australian policymakers, uh, off grid or, or edge of grid provision of of infrastructure, of education, of healthcare, would be I think a fascinating area for for conversation. And I think in all these areas, there's a need to to blend uh, economic interest with the the natural uh, inclination of people in Australia to also continue to think about India in, in philanthropic terms, that actually this is a, a huge concentration of the, of the world's population. And unfortunately, 280 roughly million people in India remain extremely poor and paralleling actually sub-Saharan Africa. So we need to be aware of that and think about how to ameliorate that situation in, in a relatively rich and well-served country. Jane, are there lessons that we might draw from India that would be valuable as we think about public policy in Australia? There is no, you know, wholesome India, um, obviously. And and 
but I think one of the one of the ways that we can create connections there and, and kind of little moments of understanding um, are through telling stories and through those stories uncovering these surprising similarities and unexpected differences. And I think when you get those little moments um, of, of recognition, you know, perhaps with school children here in Australia, perhaps with our students here at the university um, or with the broader public, you know, creating a sense of, of empathy, um, you create all sorts of... Uh, interesting relationships there um, where people are saying, uh, you know, this could be me in, in a very, very different situation. So I really think that that building up that understanding has to happen through through stories. Um, uh, we've experimented through making films and uh, using radio and, and documentary um, and you know, developing school resources in order to do that. And is the original attraction that was so strong for you to spend time in the Himalayas and to study these societies more widely spread amongst the people you meet? Do you find others who would like to emulate your experience? Yes, certainly. And um, and I think the more you can uh, you can humanise the kind of research that we do, you know, it's 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 not there in the ivory towers. It's actually working alongside people. I spend a lot of my time you know, weeding potatoes and getting blistered hands. And, and I think, you know, talking about those, those everyday, you know, challenges, but, but also, you know, the laughter and the, and the tears that go with knowing people very, very well um, in a very different context helps to bring alive these very different uh, stories. My thanks to our guest today, Dr. Jane Dyson. Thank you, Glenn. And Professor Craig Jeffrey, the director of the Australian India Institute. Thank you very much, Glenn. And thank you for listening to The Policy Show. Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hahasi with audio engineering by Gavin Nabar. This podcast is licensed under Creative Commons. Copyright, the University of Melbourne, 2017.